When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley, joined by Samuel Burke and Weston Nakamura. It's July 1st. Today, we had some jobless claims that posted a larger-than-expected decline. Uh, Samuel? Yeah, Jack, we're also following really what's happening with oil, $75 a barrel. It's highest since 2018. I'm very curious to see what Weston sees as the developing world demand goes up, but we wait for the developed developing world to have their demand go up as well. Yeah, uh, really a who's who if you look at the stocks that are uh, going up the most uh, in the energy sector, uh, like Marathon Oil, really energy sector up about 1.5% today. The dollar index also on the move up 0.3%. Today is also the first trading day of the second half of 2021. So in this episode, Samuel, I want to look back on the first half of 2021, see if we can glean any lessons, as well as look forward to what we can maybe expect. Yeah, it's also the first day of trading for Krispy Kreme for the second time around, their second IPO. It started off with a little, little bit of a glaze, but now it's turned sweet. But Jack, I can't wait to see those charts that show that the IPOs this year are re- literally off the charts. Yeah, and I think that's a perfect way to invite our guest, Weston. Um, what did you make of the market action today? Um, well, for today, uh, well, to be honest, I actually don't know where uh, everything closed, but um, you know, it would just seem like it was very much centered um, on the OPEC and uh, crude uh, situation. Crude obviously got a very nice uh, lift, um, but otherwise, uh, yeah, like you said, it's the start of the second half of the year. The first half was pretty historic, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so we'll see where yeah. we from there. Yeah, just to give people at home the context, uh, OPEC met today and they announced that they would uh, raise their exports by about 400,000 barrels. And that actually is uh, less than the market was expecting. So oil rallied on the news. Brent uh, surging to above $75 yet again. And uh, as I mentioned in the open, the the oil stocks uh, surged today. That was the sector that led the most in the S&P 500. Yeah, and Weston, what I'm really curious here is clearly what's happened is, as I was mentioning, the developed world, there's so much demand there. But if you look at the developing world, I mean, everything's reversed. It used to be the other way around for for the few years leading up to COVID. So what do you see then as the developing world, hopefully we'll get more vaccines, come back online. Do you think then the demand will surge even more? Um, so if you if you're talking about just generally like you know the e, like EMs versus DM uh, indices, you know the EM. I, I hate to just um, simplify it so much, but it, it is very much so a dollar related trade. Um, you know, especially given uh, a lot of them are um, commodities tied as well. 
But as far as the developed markets, the major markets are concerned, I was actually talking about this uh, on the exchange earlier with um, Jeremiah, who's one of our uh, very prolific, smart, uh, gifted uh, contributors. But you know, we were talking about how the Australian dollar correlated with the S&P as well as the Nikkei um, indices, um, AUD, JPY, to be specific, because of the carry trade. And then uh, you basically have Japan as the clear laggard of the year. It's actually uh, EWJ, the ETF, is flat on the year. Every other country ETF is up nearly double digits, except for Japan and China. Japan is lagging um, in, um, you know, in, in indices. Uh, the yen is the, I think, second worst performing macro asset year to date uh, behind the Turkish lira. Uh, the next to follow is like you know gold down like six percent and all that, but the yen is just getting absolutely destroyed. Um, and so yeah, Japan is basically has um, a lot of or, or or what I believe is that Europe has a lot of Japan's uh, flows, you know, kind of stolen away from it. Japan has a lot of this vaccines, you know, uh, issues, and uh, we have Olympics coming up at the end of the month. Um, that's going to be a disaster. Uh, but I actually think that after that dust has settled, uh, Japan will then outperform because Japan will have a delayed, uh, you know, reopening trade happening when everything, um, when, when the reopen is clearly done with um, in uh, the U.S. and Europe. Let's get into specifics, Weston. How are you thinking about the reopening trade, the reflation trade? They, they overlap. Specifically, I'm thinking about energy and financials. Yeah. So. Well, you know, last time I was on uh, with you guys, I was talking about how energy, although it's you know clearly the outperformer year to date, um, I think that there's just a lot of people who are very, very underweight energy. Um, and just because you see price appreciation does not that doesn't mean it's a crowded trade per se. In fact, the more that it outperforms, the less uh, likely, especially in this particular case, uh, with energy, the less likely there it is that there are, you know, um, like every every hedge fund and every uh, asset manager already long and overweight. Um, they might actually just have stepped back at this point, and you might just have a, a very small proportionally proportionally small uh, handful of uh, market participants uh, in these names. And so, um, I think that you still have a lot of firepower left. Um, I think there's a lot of people who just don't want to buy. By the energy sector for one reason or another, be it ESG or their view on value versus growth or whatever it is. Um, so I think that there's probably some surprise upside left there. As far as the financials are concerned, um, I mean that's a yield curve steepening or flattening trade, you know, more or less. Um, there's a lot of um, a lot of the you know I guess the the upside is priced in. Um, I am very curious to see, I'll probably get to this later, but this Robinhood IPO um, and how that affects brokerage companies. Um, and, you know, companies like Morgan Stanley have acquired E-Trade and they now have a brokerage arm themselves. So they're kind of very much thrown into that mix, too. So I think that you're going to get a lot of impact from how the, you know, HOOD uh, trades. We've got a question coming in, Weston. We have uh, Gabrielle saying, how high can oil go over the next month, three months, $80? Also, what's the deal with low volume and new highs? And I know we have Bank of America putting $100 on the map. Yeah, 100, 100 look, there, there's a lot of um, open interest in options uh, right around the 100 strike. So you'll probably, I mean, it, you know, 
it, it'll be tough to break it through 80, but then once through 80, you'll probably get to 100. This is if, right? I don't believe that, personally, I don't believe that this is, you know, it's not my view, but if it does break through 80, it'll probably get to 100 faster than people think. At 100, though, you're going to have that, um, you know, that dynamic where market makers um, who are sold these calls on 100 strike oil um, are essentially hedging and they'll they'll be kind of dampening um, the, the the price if it breaks through 100 it's going then it's going a lot higher a lot faster but we're we're still kind of a ways away from that um, but it can get there quicker than than uh, than people think at the same time too look like I said uh, last time too one negative headline from from OPEC um, and you can get you can get a, a pretty nasty unwind of this long uh, crude trade. Yeah, the headline was not nasty today. I believe earlier, I mean, I know earlier in the week, uh, oil traded down, the energy stocks traded down, perhaps in anticipation of a negative headline. But that negative headline did not appear. Again, the pro projections of um, supply uh, raises was, was well within um, the range, did not alarm markets at all. And also, there is some um, disputes between the members of OBEC, between uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia on one side, really the dominant players there, uh, trying to put the, the United Arab Emirates, Emirates excuse me, in its place, kind of. You know, the UAE, they want to pump more. Uh, it's unclear to what degree Russia and Saudi Arabia will be able to coax the UAE uh, to play ball. But uh, yeah, really, we, we're waiting on additional news tomorrow from OPEC. Weston, one question I want to ask you about the energy trade. You think if oil goes past 80, it could go above 100, and of course, anything could happen. Uh, my question is, what's it going to take to really drag the energy stocks to their next leg higher? I look at XLE, the uh, S&P uh, energy sector ETF, and it's really been sort of uh, stuck in the mud around 50, even though over the past month, uh, oil has continued to make new highs. Um, is it just the fact that the futures curve is just, you know, so deep in backwardation that that markets are really pricing in the future, or you know, what, what's it going to take for the next next uh, leg going to be in the energy stocks? Well, with regards to XLE, um, I'm just going off the top of my head, so I might be completely wrong here, but I'm pretty sure that XLE is just very heavily weighted in uh, Exxon Mobil and um, and I think it's not Conical Phillips. Um, Chevron. What, Chevron, right? Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I think that those two are are the you know a, a huge percentage of, of what XLE is. So XLE is basically those two stocks, um, and then and then miscellaneous. Um, so yeah, with regards to those two, if if XOM um, and Chevron don't do so well um, or are underperforming, uh, then that then XLE won't do you know will you know trade accordingly. I think that a lot of times too, um, because those are these sort of, I guess, the the, the blue chips within energy, um, in terms of you know long short funds that are um, that are that are doing like kind of market neutral pair trading, um, they'll go long a more speculative higher beta oil name and then short an XOM, and so if that's the case and everyone's using XOM or, or Chevron to use as the funding short. Uh, XLE itself will not perform, but otherwise, yeah. I mean, just it's just going to be crude itself. Um, I mean, crude at 100 is not going to just leave oil stocks flat, right? Um, at some point, I do think that the U.S. government is probably going to have to, I don't know, at least at least pretend to step in or, or notice, you know, that um, 
higher oil prices are not necessarily uh, good for the you know average American in terms of um, the knock-on effects of prices that they pay for, inflation, gas prices, all that kind of thing, too. So, You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, that's a nuanced point. I actually believe that the stocks that have been up the most in the entire S&P 500 have been those high beta, cyclical, maybe lower quality stocks like Marathon Oil. I think Marathon Oil up until recently was the number one best performing stock in the entire S&P 500. And of course, that outpaced the higher quality names, Chevron, Exxon, which as you correctly say, comprise a disproportionate amount of the S&P 500. Uh, let's move on to another big story, which is that today, Robinhood announced that it will file publicly for its IPO. Samuel, can you break down this story for us? Um, why does it matter, and why is it such a big deal? Well, listen, this is a company that now has 18 million users. We weren't aware of how many accounts they had before, and it's really changed the entire market. I mean, when you look at how much retail investing doubled, especially over the pandemic, when people were sitting at home able to do trades and using their stimulus checks to do these trades, I mean, this has fundamentally changed the market. We saw other numbers, too, that they were profitable last year, only by about $7 million. Uh, Weston will point out, though, they have skyrocketing losses this year. I, I really want to step back with you, Weston, and think about how, it, given the fact that Robinhood has changed the market so, so fundamentally, what could they do with this money to make their next move? One thing that's always stood out to me about Robinhood is the fact that they're only in the United States. They had these big plans to go overseas, to come to the UK. They eventually had to scrap those plans. So I wonder if that type of money that they'll be able to raise from this IPO will finally get them over this overseas. Um, I I don't I don't think that I think that they'll have to probably put their overseas ambitions um, aside for now. Uh, I don't know. Obviously, I don't know what they're you know, what they're planning on doing with with this with the uh, the money they raise. I think that they're actually. I mean, look, this is not this is not a. Um, you know, uh, like a Schwab type of company that's been around for a very long time. Um, they have tremendous amount of issues. They have IT issues. They have blackouts when volume is very high at the open, which is usually a time when something is going on and traders need to get into their accounts and be able to transact. Um, and that's that's happened countless, countless times. Um, and by the way, it's not just Robinhood uh, who, who that happens with either. But remember back in January with this whole GME thing, when they had to you know, cut off buying of shares of GME, they did that because they were not able to meet their margin requirements with the clearinghouse. And so they had to go out and raise $3 billion in the span of like two or three days, which is very impressive, especially considering the fact that at the time, Robinhood was going through a horrific PR nightmare and still able to raise you know, funds um, during that time. But they did that just so that they can meet their basic operating requirements, right? So um, I think that you know what, what they're just trying to basically. Um, th this is not for expansion necessarily. This is just to sort of 
maintain, um, you know, trend, if, if you will. Um, keep in mind, too, that the more assets, you know, the, the more money that Robinhood, I don't want to say customers, because Robinhood's customers are the people that pay them revenue. So Robinhood has like five customers, like Citadel, um, Jump Street, um, all those like, you know, uh, off, off exchange market makers. Robinhood users, the millions of them, um, those people, the more that their account values grow and they are growing, uh, the more of a burden it is for Robinhood in terms of, you know, collateral that they have to post and all that kind of thing, too. So this, this is just trying to keep up with the gains that their users are um, amassing. Well, it, I think it's very interesting you have that viewpoint because, of course, so often when you're investing in the tech in tech companies, it's because of their incredible scale. And before we went on for RVDB right now, you said, how are they going to expand overseas when they can barely even keep their house in check at home? To your point, Weston, uh, Robinhood just had to uh, just announced that they had to pay a seventy million dollar fine for exactly some of the things that you were talking about, widespread technical problems on the platform during periods of high volatility, where at times some traders were losing tens of thousands of dollars at a result as a result of that. But FINRA also saying that they gave customers misleading information about how much cash they had on hand and didn't even report complaints that they're required to pass on to FINRA. So certainly you would be right to assume that they're going to use some of that money to try and clean up the house. And they've already started hiring people that I've known much more in the mainstream to run tech companies. I know one of the major leaders from Facebook they brought over to run PR. So uh, I think you're spot on when you say that. And it's interesting because their opportunity to expand overseas may have been lost at this point in the sense that first marketplace doing doing it looks like it's really been filled with um people like eToro some of those competitors so they may have lost their their chance there one thing to point out jack the uh robin hood is allocating 35 percent of its ipo shares to individual investors that number is usually only about 10 percent for retail, and that's usually not used by retail investors directly. It's gobbled up by other people. Weston, I know you have some thoughts on uh, Robinhood allocating that many shares to its own users. Um, well, yeah. But for, well, first of all, so they have a dual class um, share structure. I mean, I just, I, I just kind of flipped through just really quick what the filing was. Apparently, they have you know class A shares, class B shares, class B shares are just going to be owned by the, the the two founders, I suppose. And they have like 10x the voting rights. So, um, you know, Robinhood, you know, uh, very generous of them. Thank you for allocating 35% to, to retail. Um, I, I think that um, what I was thinking about was that it's kind of amusing to think about this notion that Robinhood itself might become a meme stock, H-O-O-D. Um, if that becomes a meme stock, in 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 a sense, it's kind of funny that um, Robinhood. Okay, so they they have set, they did seven million in net income. Apparently, it's like a, they're they're looking at a forty billion dollar valuation. That's a PE of fifty seven hundred x, which means that uh, uh, of course Robinhood is not going to trade on fundamentals of all stocks, right? But let's say that there's a you know a, a short squeeze on on Robinhood or some sort of a GME situation on Robinhood. Um, first of all, um, you know, if you're if these traders are sending their trades through Robinhood to buy Robinhood, then for once that actually does make fundamental sense for the stock to rise because every time you're buying Robinhood through Robinhood, Robinhood is making money 
and therefore its stock price should be going up by virtue of its stock price going up. Um, but let's say that it actually starts to become like this hockey stick situation, like GE, right? Where you get a, like a gamma squeeze, where you, there's way out of the money, you know, 0 0.01 delta strike calls that are suddenly in the money and ever higher strikes are listed. And as soon as they are, the traders are jumping into them, you know, furthest out of the money call. Market makers who sold the calls have to buy shares of HOD, Delta Hedge, so on and so forth. Let's say stock's going up 4x a week, right? That actually really can't happen because of what we were talking about before. There's kind of a self-correcting mechanism because Robinhood itself is, has limitations as to how much collateral it can, it can post. And they might cut off buying on uh, their own shares to their own users. And so it might not ever get to that kind of level because it's only going to be their customers that are executing those sort of those sort of orders. So uh, they might be a, their own dampener on the stock going, you know, too crazy, too, you know, too much. Just one question quite coming in from a user while we're still talking about Robinhood. How would liquidation how would a liquidation event in markets impact Robinhood's ability to continue to grow, Weston? Do you think a major move would shake out considerable portions of their user base? No, because they're, okay, you have to understand what these people are, these, this, this, this base of investors. They are not playing, this is just a casino to them. Okay, I'm not talking about everybody, but I'm talking about most people who are buying out of the money calls and all that kind of thing they are fine with losing 100% of their premium on a super out of the money uh, option. Most of that was, um, a lot of it was not even there, you know, like out of pocket anyway. If they use their stimulus checks and they grew it to, you know, 10, 50, 100x, they took that principle back. Not that that was theirs, you know, that was, that was from the U.S. government anyway. Um, and so they're all playing just with house money anyway. So they don't really care about losses and liquidation events and all that. Like you're t we're dealing with a cohort of investors who who are not afraid of losses, who are almost br who brag about their losses. That is not something that um, we've seen before, and we have to keep that in mind because every time we say who's going to buy a stock at that price, well, somebody who doesn't care about losses would, and those people exist now. So the the nature of the market behavior itself has changed because of the arrival of this group of people who are 15% of new traders that signed up uh, in the last 15 or, or last 12 months are, account for more than 50% of volume. So um, I don't think that a liquidation event is going to be any big deal to anyone except for people who care about liquidation events, and that's not these people. Well, Weston, it's interesting you say that. I feel like the meme stock crowd, they definitely have a high tolerance for volatility. And in many cases, they seek it out. In many cases, they seek to create the volatility and sort of become the chaos. I don't think that they are unopinionated about which direction they want their accounts to go. They definitely want to make a lot of money. So yeah. I think that uh, you know, when they have these highly leveraged positions, they could go to zero and they could, you know, they could have to be forced to be offside and, and no longer a participant in the market. I want to go back to something you said earlier, Weston, which is that uh, the planned valuation is, is, is uh, $40 billion. I believe in 2020, um, Robinhood closed a funding round at about $12 billion uh, in total equity valuation. And then when it accepted uh, additional money uh, in very late January, early February, uh, when it was having funding problems, both by drawing upon emergency credit lines as well as accepting additional equity investment, 
I would be very surprised if that additional equity investment weren't at a discount to that $12 billion because they had to make some calls overnight. And you know how these things happen. So a move from $12 billion to perhaps less than $12 billion of valuation, now a move to $40 billion, quite a move. Yeah, I mean, well, let, let's see where the the stock actually opens. All that forty billion is just uh, some some stupid first first glance whisper number, you know. But um, but yeah, I mean, but look, this is this is a stock that's not gonna it's not gonna trade on fundamentals, right? Of course, it's gonna have yeah. a four digit PE probably. Um, if it ever dips in three digit PEs, hey, that's a buying opportunity on Robinhood. Yeah, that's price to earnings ratio PE. Um, if, for people at home who are looking at a way to get exposure to meme stocks, not to buy them, but to profit from the existence and the phenomenon of meme stocks and all this over trading and, and crazy gamma squeezes, perhaps they would uh, look at Virtue Financial, which is a publicly traded high frequency trading firm, which I believe trades at a, uh, a, a price to earnings ratio of about seven. So perhaps uh, that's an alternative to investing in this Robinhood. Yeah, there's a reason for that, though. So. Um, the, I would say, actually, if you want to do the, uh, the exchanges, even though a lot of these uh, transactions occur off exchange, the exchanges um, actually are the winners. You know, the um, CME, the uh, the CBO, uh, ICE, uh, ICE, NASDAQ. Yeah. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I just want to change gears for a bit and get back to our the inflation discussions that we've been having, particularly around labor inflation. The U.S. jobless claims posted a larger than expected decline. Prior week numbers fell to 364,000, down 51,000 from a week prior. Jobless claims are at a pandemic low now. I'm just curious, as we look at this, Weston, when you think about the fact that so many people say the next few weeks actually could be very decisive in giving us a clearer picture of the labor market in the United States because those extended job jobless benefits are ending but then on the other hand, you hear a lot of people talking about maybe September will give us a clearer picture because people will find out, are their kids going to be back in school? And no more remote learning. Can a parent go back to the office? Can a parent go back to work who is having to stay at home with a kid? And not just talking about the U.S. there, outside the U.S., that still remains a question. So I'm just curious to see, as you see these numbers continue to go down at faster than expected rates, how that influences your bigger view about labor inflation. Um, here's what I'll say about um, about labor. Um, the, the, so first of all, the the labor data is t tomorrow is the big the big one. They're always the big ones, right? Um, so tomorrow the non-farm payrolls. I, so last time I checked, I think the the estimate was like 700k. Um, the range is somewhere like between 400,000 on the low side and over a million. Which means that that kind of dispersion means that Wall Street estimates have no idea what the hell they're talking about. This is no different from when um, you know we had labor data from what was it two months ago when the high end estimates were at two million over two million two point two million and then they came in with like two hundred fifty thousand so it's like a ten x miss largest miss on uh, Wall Street history at the same time uh, and I mentioned this um, a few um, I think maybe a, you know one or two times uh, the last time I was on the show was that uh, on the exchange, we just started a program, um, this guy Brad Snyder and I, 
who is a very sharp young truck driver who just basically takes laps around the you know northeast United States through cornfields, through you know urban uh, areas. He sees industries. He passes. He sees everything. He sees everything on a week to week change basis, and he reports that back to us. And we're getting real time macro data from him that he's seeing. Um, and so as it relates to something like when Wall Street is the, the most wrong that it's ever been, and it will be because we're in truly unprecedented uncertain times, um, and they just have inputs that just don't make sense, or they're making outputs that don't make sense, or both. Right now, we have, you know, with, with exchanging lanes, we have this, this resource in which we can uh, see what's going on in a, you know, in a, in a very much a real-time sort of manner. There is no other profession besides, you know, a truck driver that could actually provide that kind of week-over-week -week data for such a huge and diverse uh, geographic area of the United States. So, for example, for the for labor, for like, you know, we were talking about um, these alternative explanations for why people are unable to uh, get hired. Um, as you mentioned, there might be like, you know, childcare issues and things like that. Um, and September, you know, we'll see what happens when the um, extended unemployment benefits, you know, run out. But um, we were also talking about, like, he he was talking about how he was at uh, I, I forgot where. I think it, it might have been somewhere in Pennsylvania. Um, he was at a gas station and he happened to see like this help wanted sign for for somebody hiring. Um, but there's the little caveat that said you will start at like fifteen or sixteen dollars an hour until September. And then you will drop down like like one or two or three dollars per hour uh, for your for your salary. So these elevated sort of wages, and this this can't be the only business that has ever thought of this sort of you know concept or scheme. So I have to think that there's probably a lot of uh, companies out there who are giving these elevated wages um, and offerings that are not meant to be permanent. And as soon as September rolls right. around, or maybe shortly after, it might drop You can off. try, I don't know, you can try all you want for wages not to be permanent. Of course, that's what a lot of these companies would like that are having to pay people these increased wages. But once you get to a certain level, I mean, just yesterday, Jared Dillian, I think, was saying uh, right here on the daily briefing, once those numbers are there, they're they're hard to get back down. And I, I mean, a lot of the reasons that people are waiting for September, they say, I still can't find childcare for my children because there aren't enough people to hire, can't hire a nanny, can't hire the normal daycare because we had around summer camp still closed uh, because they can't find people. Yeah, people I, I, have to go to work in vaccinations. Yeah, sure. But but yeah, you can't you can't you can't uh, you're I totally agree. You can't decrease the salary, but you can do layoffs. That's what I'm talking about. Like, that's what's scary. Uh -huh. The, the other thing that I keep on hearing anecdotally, although it seems more than anecdotal at this point, is the half of half the people I know who can't wait to get back into the office and the other half of the people who want to stay at home. And for some of the people I know whose offices have closed, because obviously it's much more financially advantageous, they're saying, well, I want to go to those companies where I can get out of my kid's bedroom and back into an office. And then for those people saying, well, no, I want to stay on the outskirts of London, the outskirts of New York, or if they've moved to Florida, I mean, those people really seem to have the advantage in their hand because I know lots of people who say that they're looking to change companies actively because they don't think they'll be going back to the office or they think they'll be going back to the office. So they're going to be looking for, they're going to be looking for a new employer. And a lot of that says to me that the, the advantage is in the hands of the employee or potential employee. I agree with that. With that specific demographic, with that, with the kind of um, higher skilled white collar worker who has that, 
leverage, yeah. But um, people who have to, who cannot work from home, people in the services industry and things like that, um, there, I don't think that there is much more leverage. I think that that, that leverage is going to be tilted on, disproportionately towards sort of white collar, higher paid, higher skilled sort of you know uh, jobs. Fair point. And Jack, I think it will become much clearer in the next few weeks when those extended jobless benefits end. Definitely. Well, I, what I was interested in, Samuel, is that it was a narrow beat uh, in terms of the jobless claims was slightly lower uh, than expected. But the bond market actually rallied on the news slightly, uh, you know, a few basis points, like two and a half basis Thank points. You. But typically, the you, the response you see is that on job market strength, you see bonds selling off because they want to flee safe assets and go to a home like energy, financials, or, or ri seek risk, seek reflationary, seek assets that are correlated with a growing economy that is itself correlated with low, lowering jobless claims. But um, Weston, uh, what did you make of the the slight bond rally? Um, I didn't notice it, <laughs> so I guess it wasn't. <laughs> that sounds uh, light. It wasn't. Yeah. It was it was slight. Well, it maybe I um spoke with an investor today who I'm, I'm interviewing shortly, and he said that he thinks that if the next consumer price index has a five in front of it, in other words, if the next inflation reading is five point something, extremely high, he actually thinks that long-term Treasury yields will decline because that will force the Fed to raise short-term rates at a sooner date than uh, um, they, they anticipated, and that would forestall inflation. Uh, and that was very surprising to me. It's like third yeah. level. Yeah, I, I, I hesitate. I, while I agree with the logic, I hesitate because we were we have a five percent CPI, and Fed funds are at zero. Why are they at zero? They're at zero because the Fed decided that yes, although we have a five percent CPI, which is insane, um, we the, it's transitory. So therefore, we're going to leave. So basically, like you know, Fed, like Fed funds, like rate adjustments and things like that. This doesn't just happen automatically. This is just the decision of like human beings that sit around and make dots on pieces of paper. And so, like, the, it's they can kind of come up with any reason to, to or not to do something, regardless of the data. They can be have different degrees of data dependency. But uh, as far as the like markets are concerned. Um, or like the, like treasuries, if you want to just, all you have to do is pull up a chart of, very simply put up a chart of the U.S. five-year yield or the 10-year U.S. treasury yield. Then put up a chart of USD JPY, and, and you'll, you'll see your, um, just put them on top of each other, and you'll, you'll see a very, very close correlation, um, and that's what you need to watch. Um, and that's that, kind of on a, on a shorter term or a longer term as well. Why, if you're not a currency trade, why, do, why does that matter? Uh, well, I mean, I'm just saying that if you want to understand what you know, why why a particular um, you know yield move might have happened, um, you should look at dollar yen because it's very highly correlated to uh, treasury yields at the moment for year to date. Um, and right now, the CME like yen futures um, like from the CFTC COT like positioning data. Leverage funds, so hedge funds essentially uh, are very, very short um, dollar yen. So if you get a situation where you get like a rush to cover and and buying of dollar yen, which is currently, you know, the yen is one of the worst performing macro assets um, year to date. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, 
you if you get a pull down in USDJPY, you'll get a, you might get a concurrent pull down in you know in the the longer end of the curve or the belly of the curve as well. Interesting. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Um, thank you so much for watching. To everyone at home. Uh, thank you, Samuel, and uh, thank you, Weston. Oh, I should say, tomorrow I'll be entering, excuse me, interviewing Chris Whalen, who is a uh, banking analyst, and I'll be asking him about the looming bank earnings that are going to be coming in over the next few weeks. How is he viewing bank uh, share buybacks, bank dividend recapitalization, now that they've passed their stress tests with flying colors? And he'll also be taking a somewhat uh, stern look at other fintech companies that he thinks are trying to reinvent the wheel, wheel um, but he, he thinks maybe are, uh, don't don't pass the smell test. So uh, that will be a Real Vision live tomorrow. And then, of course, on our essential tier, we have uh, the interview about credit default swaps and looming credit risk with David Menoret. Um, but thank you so much for watching. And uh, we will be here uh, tomorrow uh, on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Thank you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.